Please open your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 3. We'll continue our series through Jonah. Here we have before us one of the many passages in the Bible that describe a people who were in darkness seeing a great light. We'll read the entire for chapter 3. Our preaching text will be verses 6 through 10 this morning. Jonah chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish." When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he add his blessing to it. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, we often think of the difference between the Old and New Testaments as one of inclusion. Who is included in God's family? The Old Testament sometimes gets the label as the time where only the descendants of Abraham were included in God's covenant family. And the New Testament is labeled as the time when people from every nation are included. But those labels are oversimplified because they imply that God's covenant family was completely closed off to Gentiles under the Old Covenant. When we take the time to think more carefully about the Old Testament, we are reminded of many non-Israelites who received the blessings of the covenant in some way. Think of Caleb the Kenizzite, Rahab from Jericho, Ruth the Moabitess, Uriah the Hittite, the widow of Zarephath, and Naaman the Syrian, just for starters. It's beautiful to think about these individuals being engrafted into the covenant people, but what's one limitation they all have in common? They're all individuals, or possibly family units, that are receiving the blessings of the Lord. Israel was God's covenant nation, and outsiders were taken in one by one. But the passage we have before us today tells a different story. This is the only place in the Old Testament where we read of an entire Gentile city repenting before the Lord. 
And not only is it the residents of the city who repent, but they are led by their pagan king. And to top it all off, it's the king and residents of the most evil city that repent. This type of repentance is unprecedented in Old Testament times, but it is a type of things to come. Let's keep following the miraculous work of our Lord in the book of Jonah by looking at our text through the theme, The Word of the Lord Sparks Repentance Among the People of Nineveh. We will see this work out in three ways. The king's actions, the king's proclamation, and the king relents. Let's dive into verse 6 and see how this begins to play out, beginning by looking at the king's actions. The first thing we need to note is how verse 5 that we talked about last week relates to verses 6 through 9 in our text today, because it seems to be a repetition of similar details. Is the king just late to the party and telling the people of Nineveh to redo everything that they already did? No, that's not what's going on here. Hebrew literature considers it artistically genius to give an overview of an event before backing up in time to give the details for that event. Think of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 as another example of this. The full week of creation is told before the text backs up to explain in detail how Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day. The language of our text backs this up as well. Some mistakenly think that the word that reached the king was news of the fasting and repenting going on in the city, but that is a wrong interpretation. The same Hebrew word is used here that was also used in verses 1 and 3 for the word of the Lord. So it is proper to understand this as meaning that Jonah's preaching reached the king directly. And based on the actions he takes, the king took Jonah's message to heart. Our text says that he traded his throne for ashes and his robe for sackcloth. These are astounding acts of repentance for a king, especially a pagan king. First of all, getting off his throne and removing his robes indicates that he is distancing himself from his former idolatry and that he recognizes Jonah's God as superior to the gods he serves. Secondly, putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes is a demonstration of the sincerity of his grief and repentance. Doing this shows that he recognizes God's sovereignty over his situation and takes the threat of destruction seriously. These are not just actions of someone who's ashamed to have been caught, nor are they actions of someone who wants to please as many gods as possible. Jonah's message has struck a chord with the king of Nineveh, and his heart is deeply moved. He humbles himself before the God who made the sea and dry land, and his actions reveal just how deeply he has been moved. Dear people of God, is this how we respond when we are convicted of sin? I'm not talking specifically about the sackcloth and ashes, for those are cultural symbols for a different era. I'm talking about being genuinely heartbroken because of sin. When we are convicted of sin in our own lives, Does our remorse get us out of our comfort zone? Or can't we be bothered to mourn over our sinful state? When we confess our sins to God, 
Do we plead with him to be merciful to us because we are so wretched? Or do we just quickly ask him to forgive our many general sins and then move on with our day? Kids, when your parents discipline you for treating your siblings unkindly, do you mean it when you say, sorry? Or are you just going through the motions so you can get back to the activities you are doing as quickly as possible? And when we sin against our neighbors, do we only apologize to them or do we apologize to God as well? Remember that every sin against our neighbors is ultimately a sin against God as well. As Psalm 51 states, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's not enough to apologize to people here on earth. God requires that we are repentant before him as well. I dare say that the king of Nineveh can put us to shame in the area of repentance. You might ask if it is fair to compare us to the king of Nineveh. After all, he was the leader of the most violent and evil city on earth. And we are members of the church in the 21st century. His repentance was so dramatic because he was so evil. But we don't have as bad of things to repent from. Really? How quickly we forget that even our small sins are so vile before God that his own son had to come and die on a cross to pay for them. Our sins are worthy of such punishment because they are committed against a holy and sovereign God. The king of Nineveh understood that. So we must ask ourselves, do we? We should identify with the king of Nineveh and the apostle Paul and admit that we are chief among sinners. And God deserves our most heartfelt repentance. The king's repentance is not only an example for us, but it points ahead to something greater as well. Last time, we talked about how Jonah's preaching in Nineveh pointed to the preaching of Christ and his apostles. It follows, then, that Jonah's audience points forward to the repentant audience of the New Testament preachers. The prophet Isaiah foretold this mass repentance In verses 22 and 23 of chapter 45. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And is that not what we see especially in the book of Acts? Starting with Peter's sermon at Pentecost, 3,000 souls were added to the church after Peter's message of repent was preached. And nearly everywhere that Paul preached led to conversion of many in the cities. The city of Nineveh was a large city, but it was just a single city. Jesus ushered in a new kingdom where the repentant cities would not be able to be numbered. The king's actions are noteworthy indeed, but they are not all that he did. As we continue to move through our text, we now see the king's proclamation. The king of Nineveh followed his show of repentance with orders for the people of Nineveh to follow suit. These are the orders that led to the general summary that we read in verse 5. Notice all the actions that he commands in verses 7 and 8. People and animals shall not taste anything, They shall not feed or drink water. Man and beast are to be covered with sackcloth. They are to call out mightily to God. 
and they are to turn from their evil ways and the violence in their hands. The fasting and sackcloth represented self-denial to the people of this time period. And it wasn't that they went through this extreme discomfort in order to earn some extra humility points with God. No, as mentioned before, these were outward signs that reflected the heart. They were so convicted of their evil ways that they dared not even be comfortable while calling out to God. That all makes sense, but what about the animals? Why are they included in these commands? Some have called this an exaggeration and used it as further proof that the book of Jonah is more legend than truth. But while including animals in acts of repentance sounds strange to our ears, it would have made perfect sense to the people of Nineveh. One thing we have learned about Nineveh and the Assyrians through archaeology is that they included their animals in the most sincere of their spiritual rituals. So the fact that the text mentions the animals not only shows the full sincerity of their repentance, but it actually supports the historical truth of this narrative. Before we move on to the remaining commands of the king, we need to note one thing that the king does not tell the people to do. Historical studies tell us that when confronted with suffering or threats of punishment, it was very common for people across the ancient Near East to seek to remedy their situation by appeasing their gods by means of sacrifice, not by acts of repentance. Why would that be? Well, think about me for a minute about idols, deaf and dumb idols. They obviously didn't exist before people created them. So unlike God, they're the ones fashioned in man's likeness. That means the relationship between man and idol is akin to that of man's relationship with other men. It's a transactional relationship. I'll give you something if you give me something. So naturally, if ancient peoples wanted to get something from their God, rain, success, deliverance, or something else, they had to give something, sacrifice something. But instead of commanding sacrifices, the king of Nineveh orders an attitude of humility. This uncharacteristic command from the king is further evidence that God is at work among the people of Nineveh. They recognize that Jonah's God is unlike their gods. He is the living and sovereign Lord who can be appealed to. And to think that all this stemmed from five simple words that the Lord gave Jonah to speak. The last two orders that the king of Nineveh sets forth are for everyone to call out mightily to God and turn from his evil and violent ways. Calling out to God would be another way of talking about prayer, which we just saw would not be something they would typically do with their own gods. But the second command contains a key word in Jonah that we briefly mentioned last time. The word translated turn. Let everyone turn from his evil way. That word is used four times in the last three verses of chapter 3, signifying a climax of sorts to this chapter. I want to look now at verse 9, where the word turn is used twice. Notice how the king's message is neither pessimistic nor presumptive. The fact that he calls the people to action in repentance shows that he is not completely resigned to their fate of destruction. And his word choice of, who knows, God may turn, shows that he does not presume that their acts of repentance will surely lead to deliverance. 
Here again, he shows that he is aware that he is dealing with a sovereign, merciful God. As we finish up this detailed account of the repentance of Nineveh's king and people, we need to remind ourselves of Jesus' words from Luke that we looked at briefly last week. After saying that Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, Jesus declared, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The people of Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching, and the fact that they will rise up to judge the unbelieving Jews makes it clear that this was true repentance. God was at work in the hearts of the Ninevites, and he used them to put his covenant people to shame. And now that the one greater than Jonah is here, those who hear the message to repent have no excuse for not listening. Jesus sent his disciples out into the world with the same message that he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the biblical record shows that many Gentiles did indeed repent and believe the message of the gospel. But even though not all who hear the message respond to it in faith, someday all will acknowledge Jesus as king. Whether it's here on earth or at the last day of judgment, all people of all nations will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where do you stand in your confession of Christ? Have you already repented of your sins and turned to Jesus in faith? Have you bowed before him in a spirit of humility? Or are you too proud to submit to his rule? I urge you to join with the king and people of Nineveh and repent while the day of salvation is at hand. We have seen how the king of Nineveh has humbled himself and led his city in repentance. Now we turn to the king of kings and see how the king relents. The scene is laid out before us. Jonah has preached a message of destruction, presumably hoping that it will come to pass. The Ninevites have heard that message and responded to it in repentance, clearly hoping for deliverance from the promised destruction. Neither Jonah nor the people of Nineveh can expect God to grant them their wish, but they both know that God alone will decide the fate of their city. On one hand, verse 10 very simply reveals God's decision. He saw the heartfelt repentance of the Ninevites and didn't follow through with overthrowing the city. Nineveh had been spared. But on the other hand, the implication of God relenting, that he changed his mind, raises a lot of questions. Is God really God if he changes his mind? Well, if he truly was changing his mind, just based on the actions of his people, then he wouldn't be much of a sovereign God, would he? But although it appears from our creaturely perspective that God's mind has been changed, when viewed from God's being itself, he is remaining absolutely constant. How can that be? I think some words from Jeremiah can help shed some light on this subject. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 18, the Lord says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, 
I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. What this verse helps us to see is that God is a covenant God, a promise-making God. He lays out standards for his people and promises life for those who keep his commandments and death for those who break them. So God is not actually changing when promised disaster doesn't come to fruition. He is simply staying consistent with his promises. No illustration can perfectly capture all of who God is, but allow me to illustrate this idea. When I was learning how to drive, I was told that if I saw a critter on the road, I should not swerve to avoid it. Slow down, maybe, but don't swerve. If the critter remains in my path, then it gets the judgment that is due. But if it gets off the road, then it lives another day. From the perspective of the critter, I either hit it or I don't hit it. But am I, the driver, really the one who changed? No, I stayed in a straight line the entire time, and it was the critter who moved. God is like the car. He never changes his course. His righteousness, justice, goodness, and mercy are always the exact same. We humans are the ones who change, like the critters on the road. If we're wickedly in the line of fire of God's perfect justice and remain there, then we will be rightly judged. But if we repent and move to a place of safety in God's good mercy, then we will be spared. However, there's one shortfall with what I've been saying. It gives the impression that God's blessing or punishment depends solely on the free choice of human beings. But keep in mind what I said just a bit ago. God's blessing and punishment are not owed to us by God because of something inherent in us. No, they are offered to us by way of God's promises. And if we, like the Ninevites, respond by accepting God's promises, we know that it is only because God chose us to respond that way. So in the end, God is indeed relenting of a promised outcome, but he remains sovereign and unchanged through it all. So does this seem fair to you? Should a wicked city like Nineveh have been spared from destruction? As we'll see next time, Jonah Jonah certainly thought not. But maybe Jonah should have reflected on some Israelite history of his own. Should God's newly redeemed people have been spared when they made the golden calf at Mount Sinai? Did they get off lightly with only 40 years of wandering after refusing to enter the promised land? Did Israel deserve to have its borders extended under the preaching of Jonah and the reign of Jeroboam too? Did disobedient Jonah himself deserve to be delivered from drowning in the sea? We could go on and on, but I think you get the point. The Israelites had been spared countless times, even though they never showed the level of repentance that Nineveh did. If God's mercy was to be handed out based on sincerity of repentance, then Israel would have been wiped off the map long ago. Yet both Israel and Judah were still a people in the days of Jonah. Why? How were they still finding favor in God's eyes? A mediator. First, it was Moses, interceding on behalf of Israel at Mount Sinai and at the gates of the promised land. Then it was the Levitical priests offering sacrifices and making atonement for the sins of the people. 
But ultimately, it was Christ himself who atoned for all the sins of Israel and for all of ours too. For we too were under a message of destruction. Back in the garden, God made the promise that all who sin and eat the forbidden fruit shall surely die. And in Adam, we all committed that sin. Just like Nineveh, we deserve to be destroyed for our evil deeds. But praise the Lord that he relented and placed our punishment on his own son, Jesus Christ. Without his atoning work, we would surely be overthrown. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, because Christ came to earth and bore the punishment for the sins of all his people, his gospel message can go forth with power. No longer is Nineveh the only Gentile nation to come to repentance, but all the nations of the earth are under Christ's rule. Solomon foretold this beautiful reality in one of the two Psalms he wrote, Psalm 72. In verses 8 through 11, he writes, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. This began to be realized soon after the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the disciples. In Acts, we read of Paul having an audience with King Agrippa and with members of Caesar's own household. The message of salvation was once again going out to the kings of the earth and all their subjects. How amazing that is. And wherever the gospel went out, God was working repentance through the power of his word. Do we earnestly desire to see this continue? Does it bring us great joy to hear of people being brought to repentance through the preaching of the word? It should. God has removed the earthly boundaries of his church and has given us the privilege of proclaiming his name before the nations of the earth. And he gave us more than just five words to say. He gave us this entire book, a book that is living and active and pierces into the souls of all who hear. We are called simply to faithfully proclaim the message of this book, and God's Spirit works from there. May we go out boldly, proclaiming the message of the glorious gift of repentance. And may God's name be praised as that message works miracles in the hearts of sinners. And someday, we, along with all people, will bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the power of your word be felt even in our hearts today. Thank you for the gift of repentance and also for relenting of the punishment that our sins deserve. Give us humility when we are confronted with our sins and may we rest in the atoning work of your son when confessing our sins before you. May our hearts overflow with love for your gospel And may it be our heart's delight to tell others about you. All this we pray for the honor and praise of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.